Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. As we conclude chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Please be seated. In our day and age, we have a new form of communication, a a new media in which to track cultural trends. And that is, you know, social media and online videos in particular. What is most popular is that which is what they say, trending, or even perhaps going viral. And this, in many ways, says volumes of who we are as a society and that which we value. Well, this is true of our religiosity as well. What is relevant or what is acceptable in regards to the spirituality of the day and that which is, is that which is oftentimes most popular. And so the number one sermon, if you can call it as such, watched on YouTube is a sermon called The Power of I Am. Now, I don't need to mention the preacher, but you probably can guess who it is. And admittedly, by the sound of the title, it sounds like a a good sermon, The Power of I Am. But then you hear the actual sermon and you realize it's not so much. Let me share with you just a small tidbit of it. This pastor says this, here's the principle. What follows the I am will always come looking for you. When you say I am so clumsy, clumsiness comes looking for you. I am so old, wrinkles come looking for you. I am so overweight, calories come looking for you. It's like you're inviting them. Whatever you follow the I am with, you're handing it an invitation opening the door, giving it permission to be in your life. And so therefore, he goes on to say, get up in the morning and invite good things into your life. I am blessed. I am strong. I am talented. I am disciplined. I am focused. I am prosperous. When you talk like that, talent gets summoned by Almighty God. Go find that person. Health, strength, 
abundance, discipline starts heading your way. You quickly realize the power of I am has nothing to do with the one who calls himself the I am, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the name of Christ never gets mentioned in this so-called sermon because the I am is me and you. I am what I say that I am. I am what I think that I am. I am what I believe I am. And therefore, we should think, we should believe, we should speak only good things into our life. As it says there, health, strength, abundance, prosperity. Well, as you know, this type of preaching gets you the number one sermon on YouTube. It gets you full stadiums. Best-selling books, endorsements from Oprah. But this type of teaching sets you at odds with the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures and of Christ Himself and of His apostles. And yet, sadly, this is a summary of America. We only want that which is good, that which will make us prosperous, because that's our definition of blessing That is our definition of the good life. But let me ask you, what happens when life is not so good? When it is unfair, when it is unjust, when it is downright difficult and tough? I tell you that this type of preaching has no answers for you. And even worse, would probably blame you for not having enough faith or perhaps positivity in your thoughts. This type of theology or teaching has no room for suffering and ultimately has no theology of the cross. And yet our passage this morning says that it's through suffering, it's through difficulty, we experience our calling as Christians. And we identify with our Savior who suffered on our behalf, it's through our sufferings, not absent from them, but it is through our sufferings and ultimately through His suffering that we experience real answers and real hope. And so we're going to look at this this morning in three points. The call of Christ, the example of Christ, and finally the comforts of Christ. First, the the call of Christ, as we've been mentioning This section comes as a part of a larger subject and and section that is started in verse 13 where it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake. And it says, Be subject to every human institution. And then he lays out several institutions such as the civil and then social or vocational. Next week we'll see the marital realm. And in the midst of this subjection, he sets forth the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as to set our eyes on Christ once again. As if Peter doesn't want to lay out too many commands without the reader recognizing that these are not baseless, these are not foundationless commands, but these commands come in response to the Lord and what He has done for 
us. They come forth from the gospel. They are built on the indicatives of the gospel. Because this is true in Christ, therefore this is what should take place. This is how we ought to live. And so Peter is bringing us back again to Christ again and again. Even in the practical aspects of this epistle. Even in these commands. And that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? I've been somewhat convicted of late, specifically in my own parenting, that we as parents can become very good moralists, very good behaviorists. And what do I mean by that? Well, we teach right from wrong, do this, don't do that, and sometimes we can do so completely without the commands of Scripture without linking it to what the Word of God says, and more importantly, linking it to Christ. Explaining the what without ever explaining the why. Now that's not to say that everything in your home needs to be a teachable moment. If your child spills a a cup of milk, they probably don't need a three-point sermon on the spirituality of spilled milk. They probably just need to be told, be careful and clean it up. But there are other times that we need to take a moment, that we need to link it to spiritual issues, that we need to deal with hearts and not just with actions or behavior. We're not raising moralists, are we? Lord willing, we're raising Christ lovers, those that recognize their, their sin that they have sinned, but even more importantly, they, they see that there is a real Savior and that they need that Savior themselves just as much as their parents do, that they are made right through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Because we don't want ever to, to have our children, to have our grandchildren to think that, that I can never do right. I can never please mom and dad and ultimately I probably can never please God. And therefore... They rebel, rebel from their parents, rebel from the faith, or perhaps even worse, think if I do this and don't do that, then I'm, I'm good. I'm good with my parents, and I'm ultimately good with God, and ultimately you're making Pharisees or little hypocrites. Now we want them to see that, yes, they have real sin, but they have a stronger Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the the pattern here that that Peter is giving to us, is he not? He is saying, be subject, and that we must be subject, as he says, to the civil authorities, to the king, to the emperor, to to the government itself. We must be, as it says in verse 18, subject to those that are over us, as it says, servants, be subject to your masters. We'll see next week where it talks about wives, be subject to your own husbands, but You might ask, well, why? Well, Peter tells us why. We're to be subject because Christ himself was subject. He subjected himself and even subjected himself to the point of suffering. Suffering to the point of death. And so this section that we look at this morning begins this way. For to this you have been called. Been called to what? Well, we could say in one sense we've been called to subjection. Or called to be subjects. But I think it goes even beyond that. I think what Peter is laying in this section is very much connected to what we saw 
last week when it said, servants, be subject to your masters. And then goes on to say, for to this you have been called. And many of whom Peter was writing to were literal servants. But I think this teaching would say, this goes even beyond that, that we as Christians are to be seen as servants. And we see that throughout the Scriptures, do we not? That we are to be reminded that the Lord is Lord, and if He is our Lord, then we are to be His servants. Because He is our Master. And as our Master, we are to follow His commands. We are to be obedient to Him in His ways. We are to be subject to Him. Yes, as servants, and even, perhaps we would even go farther and say, as slaves. One commentator puts it this way, we have lost this incredibly important concept of Jesus as Lord. And I, as his slave, we have a man-centered emphasis in the church. We have man-centered theology that dominates evangelicalism in which we talk about Jesus coming along as a kind of buddy who loves you and wants to satisfy all your desires and give you everything you want. That's not what the New Testament teaches. What the New Testament teaches is not that you're Lord and he's your slave, but rather that he's Lord and you are his slave. Slave. That is the center of all the New Testament teaching. It is inherent, he goes on to say, in saying that Jesus is Lord. That you are a slave who understands that obedience is the necessary response. And that's what I believe Peter is saying. To this you have been called. You have been called to be servants and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And goes on even further to say that you are going to demonstrate that you are servants, that you are slaves by the way that you suffer. But the call of Christ is to suffer, to pick up your cross and to follow him and to pick up your cross means to die to yourself and live to righteousness. And you might be saying, hold on. Pastor, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for for health. I signed up for wealth. I signed up for blessing. My best life now, the victorious Christian life. And yet Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would say to us this morning, if you want victory, you want glory, look to the cross. And he points us to the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. That you can't have glory minus the cross. Martin Luther goes as far as to say any teaching that tries to remove the cross, tries to say that you do not need to go through suffering, go through pain, go through tears in this life, is the theology of Satan himself. And he takes that, I think rightfully so, from Satan's temptation of Christ. You remember that temptation, do you not? When the devil takes Jesus to a very high point, and it says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory, 
and said, all these things I will give you if you just but fall down and worship me. Notice what the temptation is. Notice what the devil is putting forth before Christ. We can end this right here, right now. You don't have to suffer anymore. You don't have to battle the difficulties and struggles of this life. You don't need to be the man of sorrow. And you sure do not need to be crucified and killed. All the glory, all the kingdoms can be yours. Simply bow to me. And you know our Lord's response. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord, your God, and you shall, what? You shall serve him only. Satan says, no service needing, no suffering, all glory. Jesus says, service and suffering are the way of true glory. And so the call of Christ is to suffering. It is to service. And I think this is an appropriately timed message because many of you are going through difficulties and afflictions. There's a lot of health-related problems at this time in our congregation. There's family difficulties, financial struggles, mental and emotional and spiritual needs. There is ultimately suffering of various kinds. And this looms large and and heavy upon us individually and as a congregation. But we should never respond and think, well, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with us? Or even worse, try to hide it and and just try to pass it off like it's it's really no big deal. When somebody asks you how you're doing, just to say, oh, I'm, I'm good, when the reality is you're not good at all but you're struggling. And so often I think we do that because we have such a a difficult time admitting our problems because we don't want to appear to be weak, especially as Christians, because we think, well, what, what does that say about my faith? And so as a result, we put on this kind of happy, chipper Christianity, which really is a phony, which is a fake. And I'm not saying that we have to walk around, be miserable and complain and and to grumble. No, we're to always have the the joy of the Lord, but we are people that suffer. And yet, because we don't share that suffering with one another, we suffer oftentimes alone. And what happens as a result is that we begin to think, "Where, where is God? Where is God when it, when it hurts? Where is God when your world is turned upside down? When your world completely falls apart? Where is the Lord when the world mocks and scorns and says to you and says to the church, where's your God now? Do we give in to that type of thinking? Do we fold? Do we sheepishly say or think, you know what, they're probably right. Either he's not powerful enough to prevent this or he he perhaps doesn't care. Or even worse, he must be absent. 
from this pain and suffering and trial in my life. He must not be in this, as they say. Or can we stand up under such trials and such afflictions? Can we bear them with dignity and grace, knowing that the Lord is both sovereign and good simultaneously, even in our suffering, even in our pain? Can we boldly say that he is not absent from my suffering, but very much present in them? For it is during our suffering, it's during our times of defeat and even weakness, when God may seem hidden, that we actually have the opportunity to see the greatness of God and His glory instead of our own. Because I believe it is during those times that we get to see the glory of Christ and the cross And so we see that second then here as Peter puts forth the example of Christ. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. This word that is used for an example is a unique one. It's the only place where this is used in the entirety of the New Testament. And the meaning is literally to write upon or to Right on top of. The idea is to trace. We currently have a kindergartner in our home. That's learning to read and to write. And so there's a lot of tracing going on. A lot of tracing of letters. And you've all seen those sheets where they have the drawn out letters and the student is to go and to write on top of those letters so as to learn how to write on their own. And that is picturesque of what Peter is saying here is that your life is to trace the life of Christ. Is to model the life of Christ. To be an example of Him as he even says at the end of verse 21 that you are to follow in His steps. Well, what is the example? What are his steps? How is it that Christ dealt with suffering? Well, Peter tells us, verse 22, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges rightly or justly. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ was perfect and acted perfect, even in the face of sin, even the ugliness and the vileness of those that would sin and bring such offenses against Him. He was the passive Offender, and yet he did not offend in return. And Peter would say that through our sufferings, we're to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to follow his example. You might read that list, and like me, you might think, well, quite frankly, that doesn't feel, make me feel much better, Pastor. Because in my suffering, I, I, 
oftentimes don't look like Christ. I don't look like those things that Peter lays out. My suffering is oftentimes a a catalyst for greater sin. And not for sanctification or, or seemingly anything spiritual. As a result of all sorts of evilness in my heart and my mind and upon my lips. When I suffer, I, I, I suffer badly, we would say. I'm a ball of anxiety and fear and anger and perhaps even worse. When I suffer, you don't even want to get near me. You don't even want to touch me with a ten foot pole because I might just explode. I understand. I got you because I'm right there with you. But I would say this. Suffering doesn't put that sin in you. Suffering brings that sin which is already in you out. Let me say that again. Suffering does not allow sin to enter in. Suffering brings sin which is already there, which is already present, out. And so don't think, as we often do, I think, and say, God, I'd be a whole lot better person if I didn't have to go through this. Reality is that it's through the trials that the Lord is making us better people. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me give it by way of illustration this morning. My wife, perhaps some of you do this as well, makes her own bone broth. And you put these bones in this pot. And you look at those bones and you think there can be no possible nutritional value in these things. And yet you put them in and you let them simmer, boil, for literally Days on end, it seems. And all that is in that bone is drawn out. And the result is that you have this rich, nutritional liquid that's good for you. In our house, if you are sick, then you are going to get bone broth. Right? If you have the flu or just not feeling well, some of this is going to be warmed up for you. And it is. It is good. It is like this liquid gold that does help you. And the same thing is happening through your suffering. That by ourselves, we are hard-hearted. We are hard-headed. Even to push that illustration a little bit more, we are boneheaded. That is you and me. But the Lord allows these trials, these difficulties to come into our life as a way to, in a sense, heat up our surroundings. Sometimes for a very long, long time. And quite frankly, it is not enjoyable. As the author of Hebrews says, it is is not pleasant when we go through the discipline of our Father. But through it, our heart and our mind are being softened and made pliable 
And the Spirit begins to do His work. And what comes out as a result is that which is pure gold. That low boil, that low simmer of that heat drives us to Christ and ultimately it conforms us to Christ. Without that suffering, without those trials, without those difficulties, none of that would happen. It's through them that we identify with Christ and His sufferings for us. Paul will say in Colossians chapter 1, I rejoice in my sufferings. When's the last time you've said that? But he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because as a result, it allows me to be a living manifestation of the gospel. A living example, a living witness of what my Lord went through for me. Because as Peter even says here, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and to live for righteousness. That's what's taking place. We are dying to sin so that that righteousness may come forth. He goes on to say, by his wounds you are healed. Our sins are being done away with. And His wounds make us whole and heal us even as we go through the scourgings of sufferings. But it's not all sadness. It's not all doom and gloom because we see lastly then the comfort of Christ. That not only do we have a Savior who committed no sin, who's had no deceit, no reviling, no threatening, but perfectly entrusted Himself to the will of His Father. And He did so for us, for as it says, by his stripes we are healed. But even in the midst of our stripes, in the midst of our sufferings, he does not leave us. He does not forsake us. As it says there in the last verse, for you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That the, the good shepherd has not forsaken us. Even as we have wandered off or or perhaps experienced these difficulties, sometimes because of our own doing, sometimes because of our own sin, we go through these things. And yet, the shepherd comes and finds that lost sheep and gives us comfort and gives us hope. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear not. Why? Because the psalmist says it's there that your rod and your staff comfort me. Again, we do not recognize our need for that rod and staff until we go through the valley. And there we realize that He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. But He is very much present there. As I close up this morning and we go to the table as I mentioned before there's a lot of tracing going on in our home at this time and those sheets all of you know them have these perfect letters on them that stay perfectly within the lines the K 
capital letters half or above that dotted line and half or below. And the lowercase letters there oftentimes never rise above that dotted half line. They are perfect. And the student is to trace these perfect letters. And then they are to do what? Well, then they are to go on and try to do it on their own. And what happens when they first try to do it on their own? That's all right. You can admit it. They're not very good, are they? But you can't say that as a parent. You look at them and you kind of squint and you go, well, yeah, that's kind of an A. Let's keep working on that. Let's keep tracing these letters and, and then let's have you do it again. And this scripture would say to us, Jesus is that perfect example. And our lives are far from it. And it would be nice if we just had to go through one trial or one suffering and learn all that we would need to learn to do it perfectly. But the reality is that we need a whole life of tracing the Lord and His perfect example. And even then, we would still be a pale reflection of our Lord. And yet it is through those sufferings, it's through those trials that we see the Lord, we see our need for the Lord, and the others see the Lord in us. That it is one of the greater manifestations of the gospel in our life as we go through these difficulties and through these struggles. So the popular thought of the day is that the sufferings and troubles are anti the call of Christ. But we as biblical Christians, as disciples of Christ, says, no, this is exactly the call of Christ. That Jesus didn't say, blessed are the healthy and the wealthy and the prosperous, but rather said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that are hungry. For they shall be filled. And so as we come to the table this morning, we have no better picture than this. Of Christ's body broken and His blood shed. Not for the perfect, but for the sinful. Not for the well, but for the sick. Not for those who have no struggles, but who greatly struggle. And not for those without suffering, but for those who suffer, yet continue to bow the knee to the one who allows the suffering to remain. In this meal we see the true suffering servant, broken for you and for me. For by his wounds we are truly healed. It's through his suffering that we are filled. Amen.